1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Erin Legacy about her fantastic new book, Making Space for the Dead, Catacombs, Cemeteries, and the Reimagining of Paris, 1780 to 1830. Erin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write about this topic?
2: Well, I'm an assistant professor of history at Texas Tech University. And when I started on this project at the very beginning of my graduate program at Northwestern University, and um, I was kind of casting about looking for a dissertation topic. I had some wonderful advice from mentor to flounder creatively in the library, (laughs) kind of looking for anything that caught my interest. And I kind of stumbled across the Paris catacombs and so immediately tried to find more information about them and was kind of delighted um, and surprised to find that there was surprisingly little written by historians. And so that kind of launched me on the next 10 years of my life working on this project. So it all kind of all stemmed from seeing an image of the catacombs.
1: Well, it, it's a fascinating book, and the crux of your argument is how the French Revolution shaped um, and changed public understanding of the dead. And before we get to the French Revolution, let's go back to 1780 and talk about burial culture in the old regime. In 1780 was the year that the cemetery of the Innocents was closed by Louis the Sixteenth. Tell us about the cemetery and how it illustrates public understanding. Of the dead prior to the revolution.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's such a fascinating story. So the Cemetery of the Innocents, so Cimetière des Saints was, I mean, it was a part of Parisian history as far back as Paris had been a city. I mean, people had been burying people in that particular part of the city since Roman times, when it was not at the heart of the city the way it would be in the 18th century. And I think it wasn't until the 13th century um, that, you know, the the cemetery was walled in and it became kind of an official cemetery in the city. And then over the course of the next couple of centuries, it just kind of expanded and grew um, and became more and more full. I mean, by the time we get to the 18th century, On the one hand, it's this important symbol um, of Parisian identity because it's been such a big part of the city for so long. But on the other hand, it's starting to cause problems, particularly for people who live close to the cemetery. Um, So there's a lot of complaints, particularly in summer months, that there were really bad smells coming out of the cemetery because the way people were buried were in these large, deep mass graves that were left open for months at a time until they were full and then they were filled in. And then a couple of years later, they'd be opened up and emptied out and refilled again. And uh, this process had been going on for centuries. It's both kind of this important part of Parisian identity, but it's but it's a part that's becoming kind of problematic um, by the time we get to the to the middle of the 18th century. There's a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is, um, well, the, the main reason is I think people are kind of changing the way they think about the place of the dead in the city. So... Um, In the medieval and early modern period, it was uh, most Parisians are buried in church graveyards. And there's a good reason for this, because if you're buried in a church graveyard, you're closer to the heart of the church, you're closer to the prayers of the parishioners. And so it's a benefit to you in the afterlife. But by the time we get to the middle of the 18th century, when the Enlightenment is in full swing, a new discourse of like science and salubrity is kind of displacing that understanding of the dead. And instead, people are worried uh, about the effect that the dead, and in particular, their terrible uh, cadaverous miasmas might have on the communities of the living. And this all kind of comes to a head in 1780, when a couple of the houses that bordered the Cemetery of the Innocents had um, their basements going to break open and terrible smells of decomposing bodies from the cemetery that it was next to start seeping into the houses. And so this causes kind of great alarm, as you can imagine. And I think this is like the final nail in the coffin for uh, for urban burial, as it were. Um, and this is the thing that finally brings about significant and lasting change. And urban burial is actually then outlawed after this whole scandal And uh, there had been several attempts earlier in the 18th century to make that happen, but it didn't finally, it finally uh, sort of came, came to pass after this Uh, urban catastrophe. Um, And so I think that's a good example of this transition of people thinking about uh, the dead belonging in the city for the good of the dead to the dead belonging perhaps outside of the city for the good of the Mm -hmm. living.
1: Yeah, you have a a great description of the removal of the bones from that cemetery. We're going to talk about the catacombs later, but I love that. I think it comes from Mercier's description of how it happened in the, the dark of night and, and people would lean out their windows and watch, right, <laughs> watch right. these.
2: Yeah, of course. Mercier is like such a wonderful describer of, of of everyday life. But yeah, he describes people running to their windows in their night clothes, watching this like slow and lugubrious and fascinating but horrifying experience of watching generations of bodies being removed from this huge cemetery, the largest and oldest cemetery in all of Paris, Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of dragged across the city and brought to a series of new locations, one of which becomes the Paris Catacombs. That's not the only place they were brought, but that was the most famous one. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so all of that is happening towards the end of Louis XVI's reign, and then these public attitudes change with the french revolution which as you write dramatically altered the public's understanding and expectations of the dead how so like what changed and and why yeah that's a great question
2: i mean on the one hand we know there's already this transition underway their people who are already uh, much less tolerant of the presence of the dead like throughout the city than they were earlier in the century or in earlier centuries um so that's happening <laughs> and like the and the the A process of of cemetery reform, of creating a new kind of burial culture, was barely in the early stages when the revolution breaks out. I mean, as far as they had gotten was emptying out a couple of cemeteries, but no new cemeteries were planned or um, no land had been purchased. Like, there was no steps taken to create this sort of new burial culture for Paris. So... On a sort of purely logistical level, the revolutionaries inherit this problem without a solution, right? And so they have to, but they have a lot of other things on their plate, as you can imagine when 1789 um, begins. And so, on the one hand, they have to come up, they're sort of forced to come up with a a new kind of burial culture, one that's more in line with Republican ideology. Um, On the other hand, the revolutionaries are really good at noticing that the dead are a really useful political tool. And this isn't unique to the French revolutionaries, but they're particularly good at taking advantage of the power of dead bodies. Antoine de Beck wrote this amazing book a couple of years ago about um, the political power of dead bodies in the revolution, where he okay. describes the corpse as being kind of the, the at, at the very center of Republican political culture. I mean, uh, you think of... Um, sort of dead enemies on display on the guillotine or martyrs who are paraded through town. You have people like the journalist Jean-Paul Marat who was uh, famously murdered in his bathtub. His corpse is carried all throughout the city even as it's decomposing. Similarly, there's the... uh, uh, the revolutionary uh, Le Pelletier, who's stabbed after he votes for the death the death of the king, and he's also treated as a martyr, and his body is put on display um, for people to visit. Um, so you have sort of martyrs, you have villains, and then you also have heroes, right, who are put up in the Pantheon, which is another amazing uh, invention of the French Revolution. It's a it was a church that hadn't yet been used as a church, I don't believe, that was converted into um, the French Pantheon, sort of uh, thankful to. The the French heroes, um, the, dead, the dead heroes of France. Um, and so you see the, the French revolutionaries really mobilizing the dead in a way that like prior regimes hadn't. And so you have the sort of confluence of these two things, this need for cemetery reform and burial reform, and then the dead taking on this sort of very important public role. And I think these two things come together to create this unique burial culture during the revolution.
1: Yeah. So you write that it's in the revolution's most radical years, which were 1792 to 1794, that this new approach to burial reform really begins to take shape. And as you mentioned, like the old regime, the revolutionaries had to deal with issues like where to put the new cemeteries. But there were also new concerns dealing with things like the role of religion, in the funeral ceremony, for example, could you talk about the secularization of burial culture during the revolution? Sure. I mean, first
2: and foremost, I mean, the Catholic Church is removed from the equation in the revolution. And so, I mean, um, burial culture had really revolved around the church you know, for centuries. And so that was a, a, a dramatic and important shift. And if there's one thing anyone knows, I think about the dead and cemeteries during the French Revolution, anyone who studied the French Revolution, they might remember the famous atheist cemeteries of Fouché and Chaumet. And these are famous. I remember learning about these as an undergraduate because these radical atheist revolutionaries, and there's not that many radical atheists running around in revolutionary France, but they got a lot of attention because of how how extreme they were. Um, So they had passed some laws uh, governing cemeteries gar- wanting to guarantee that they would be wholly secular spaces. And one of the features of these cemeteries were these signs placed in the cemeteries announcing death is the eternal sleep, kind of reminding everyone that there is no afterlife, that that death is the end. Uh, and another sign I think that was supposed to say the just man never dies. He lives on in the memory of his fellow citizens. Um, so there is an afterlife, but it's kind of a secular afterlife of, um, you know, being remembered by your fellow citizens. And so they're the most extreme examples of this radical revolutionary cemetery culture, but they're not really representative, I think, of bigger changes and uh, that were underway. Uh, but they do sort of demonstrate that sort of radical shift away from the Catholic burial culture. I think... The best example of how a revolutionary might think about the dead actually comes from uh, a member of the the Department of Public Works, uh, Jean-Baptiste d'Avril, who who, uh, writes this report on behalf of the department, describing what in seventeen ninety, the very beginning of 1794, so kind of the very height Mm -hmm. of the terror, describing what a a perfect Mm -hmm. revolutionary cemetery should look like. And it was very practical. Um, it wasn't kind of this necessarily an idealized cemetery. He imagined like a large suburban burial space um, where everybody would be treated in exactly the same way. So you see the revolutionary value of equality being reflected in his idea of a, of a Republican cemetery. So everybody would be buried in like long single trenches side by side um, instead of being sort of piled on top of one another the way they had been under the old regime. And this had the double benefit of... Um, Hastening decomposition, because bodies wouldn't be sort of squished together so much, so they would decompose more quickly. But it was also this wonderful um, demonstration of equality and fraternity, right? Everybody lies side by side. Nobody lies on top of anybody else. Um, And there would be no tombstones or individual markers in the cemetery at all, again, to kind of underscore that equality of the revolution. Instead, there'd be a series of tablets placed throughout the cemetery with um, headings on them, indicating um, particularly important virtues for a public like um, uh, filial piety or patriotism or uh, I can't remember the rest of them, but there was a series of sort of tablets placed throughout the cemetery. And if you had lived a life that exemplified those virtues, your name would be inscribed on that tombstone. So it's an interesting way of making sure that like um, the citizens who are particularly good Republicans um, will sort of live on, um, but, but of also guaranteeing that even if your name didn't make it onto one of those tablets, you would still deserve, or you would still be granted the same measure of equality and death that everybody else was, which was, of course, the opposite of the way things would have been under the old regime, where um, the dead, would, the poor would be buried anonymously and the wealthy would be given these sort of ostentatious burial
1: spaces. Speaking of new reforms, um, jumping ahead a little bit to Napoleon, He comes to power in 1799, and he wants to reestablish order and stability in France, of course. And one way to do that was through burial reform. And his younger brother, Lucien, was the minister of the interior, and he solicited ideas for cemetery reform through this essay writing contest. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ideas that people submitted were, I'm just going to call them very creative. Uh, (laughs) can, Can you describe some of these ideas?
2: Yeah, that's one of my favorite things I came across while I was doing research. Um, this is at the, in the archives of the Institut de France. So they have all of these um, original submissions that people who answer their um, essay competitions sent, would send them in to the institute. And, they, and they, they're still there for you to look at. And so it was this amazing wow. um, cache of sources. Um, and the, the, yeah, the essay contest asks, what are the best ways to honor the dead? basically. So we're hopping ahead here about 10 years from the revolution. Uh, There have been no significant burial reforms. People are still buried in sort of these temporary, um, very poor quality urban cemeteries. People are complaining about them. Um, And so they, I mean, things are actually worse than they had been before the revolution. And so when uh, Bonaparte comes to power, one of the first things they do are like, how do we reform this burial crisis? And as you said, Lucien, his brother issues this, um, um, this essay competition, and so you get. I think there was about forty entries, and they came in from all over the country, um, from mostly from you know people who submitted to a lot of these competitions, so um, intellectuals and academics, but some were from like farmers um, or architects, um, and uh, I guess I. I would love to just spend an hour talking about all of the different ones, but I'll try to remember my favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> my favorite proposals for for burial reform. So one thing that showed up um, that I didn't expect, uh, but that showed up over and over again, was this idea that um, we need to judge the dead after they're dead to figure out what to do with them. Um, and so I think I called this post mortem judgment in the book. Um, and this could take a number of forms. Uh, a couple of the uh, the authors of these proposals described what they called an Egyptian death tribunal because of course people are obsessed with ancient Egypt at the beginning of the 19th century and the end of the 18th century Um, and this is a process by which like somebody dies their corpse is then put on display and publicly examined and then they're subjected to a series of Questions that people, anyone who knows them um, or knew them when they were alive would answer these questions, um, interrogating kind of how they had lived their life when they were alive. Were they a good parent? Were they a good colleague? Were they a good citizen? Um, And if they were, then they get sort of perhaps um, extra flowers or some extra festivities. and if they're if they're found to be uh, not a good citizen, um, then they're 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 sort of taken off into the corner and buried in what's often referred to as like the uh, the cemetery of oblivion or the the black cemetery, um, something sort of designating a cemetery for the wicked, where they're doomed to be forgotten forever. <laughs> so <laughs> so interesting, right? It's, you yeah. can you can really see this anxiety over like how do we make sure that that people continue to be moral. Um, in in an era where the Catholic Church has lost its sort of moral um, influence, right, and so this is one way—they're a very heavy-handed way they're trying to do that.
1: Can I just say I can see that as a reality TV show? Yeah. <laughs> gonna, like, oh, yeah. sadly, yeah. But so that was that was one really interesting, and then uh, another one that was fascinating was this idea of medallions. Oh gosh. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Could you describe the glass ones? You mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
2: there's an architect, um, Pierre Giraud, um, and he'd been an architect who was active during the revolution. He was actually working on the prisons. And so he was used to sort of working with large amounts of, of bodies. Um, and he came up with what he thought was like the perfect solution that would solve both the crisis of like having so many bodies and needing somewhere to put them, um, but also needing to Mm. make these bodies, um, somehow morally instructive to the living. And so he proposed building um, not a large cemetery, but like a large crematorium, basically, on the outskirts of town, um, where people would be cremated, which was illegal, so that he knew this wasn't like a, a thing that could actually happen, but he was hoping it might it might happen. So they'd be cremated, um, and then their bones would be separated from the rest of the remains of their body, and then it would be subjected to an even higher temperature, where it could be turned into glass. And he actually inclu- included an appendix um, in his proposal describing exactly how you can turn bone into glass. And, and then once their bones had been turned into glass, they could be, he said, they could be You know, you could do whatever you wanted with them, but he suggested perhaps carving like a medallion featuring the face of the dead or maybe like a bust featuring them with like their ashes um, in a little compartment on the bottom. And he thought people could then take these home with them and put them on display in their homes. And that way they would continue to always be sort of inspired by literally the remains of their dead family member um, or friend. And he provides this this he imagines a scenario in the future where there's a young woman who's being seduced by this this like horrible rake and she, she glances over and sees like the bust of her mother and she's, she's sort of fortified to push him off and then it protects her virtue. So he's trying to give you this example of how the dead can continue to exert a strong influence on the living. Um, He actually also included in his proposal um, in a footnote, a request that this happen to his body after he died, And he knew it wouldn't be legal, but he's like, if it ever becomes legal, (laughs) can you like dig me up and turn me into glass?
1: Sadly, these proposals were never implemented, but Napoleon did eventually overhaul Parisian burial culture with the help of the new prefect of the Seine, Nicolas Fréchot. What were some of the more significant changes that were made by Fréchot and Napoleon? Right, so the Fréchot
2: passes his... Um, his law in 1801, and then Napoleon kind of augments it in 1804. And the most significant changes that are made are number one, um, cemeteries will be outside of the city, outside the city walls. So, like that's something people have been talking about for decades, um, and so it's finally passed, um, sort of definitively passed into law. Um, and second, that everybody will have access to a decent burial. Um, and a decent resting place for at least five years. So every Parisian, regardless of how much money they have. Um, and if you're an indigent Parisian or a Parisian without the means to afford your own burial and uh, and um, uh, resting place, the state will pay for that. And so I think those are, I mean, both of those show the, show the influence of the 18th century pretty strongly. Um, but they're not as completely revolutionary as they, as they first sound. Um, because of course this is the 19th century, not the late 18th century and so they also sort of made allowances for um, families who wanted to what they said um, augment uh, the burial and commemoration of their family members. so if you wanted to build a very elaborate mausoleum um, knock yourself <laughs> out <laughs> basically and so uh, what you ended up seeing happening was th- this all um, it plays out in the cemetery of Père Lachaise, which opens Um, very shortly after. Um, And um, when Père Lachaise opens its gates, most people are buried in a communal grave. Um, But they have sort of, they're supposed to be sort of separated by their neighbor by like a foot. Um, So it's actually very similar to what Jean-Baptiste Avril had proposed um, in 1794, except they're also allowed, every family member is allowed to kind of decorate that one small plot where they're their family member has been buried for free, however they want for up to five years. And so you see all of these very small um, wooden crosses or small tombstones, sometimes little gates are put around them. Um, so that's how most people are buried in Père Lachaise. But that's not what you hear about. What you hear about are the sort of elaborate, amazing um, mausoleums and tombs that start to, to fill up throughout the, um, the restoration. Mm-hmm. And so While the sort of underlying principle had been, we'll treat everybody the same in death, uh, what ends up happening very quickly is there's this pretty stark division between the wealthy um, and the poor um, in the
0: cemetery. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Speaking of Perlishez, you talk about Perlishez is the perfect example of the cemetery as a space for social reunion and reinvention. And one of the early notable tombs that was erected in mm-hmm. the cemetery was the tomb of Antoine de Guillaume Lagrange? Who was he, and how does his tomb illustrate that idea of the cemetery as a new space for social reunion? Yeah, so
2: Lagrange was a soldier, in, like in the Napoleonic um, Wars, who died in um, in Central Europe, um, in Poland, um, and he was like a young man, and his his body was actually never recovered and brought back to France. So his body actually isn't in the cemetery, but his mother builds this um, sort of beautiful monument to him that looks like a, a tombstone. It's like a little um, a little display and it, it's becomes famous in the early 19th century because it's the first time that a, someone's likeness was depicted on their tombstone. So his like profile, I think, is on display, um, and you can look up his grave because you can actually still visit his grave. It's still there at Perlecha. Yeah. There's an entire mm-hmm. alleyway named after him. Um, mm-hmm. And what's so interesting about this particular um, sort of, I guess, it's we'll, we'll call it a tomb, uh, even though he's not actually he's not actually there, mm-hmm. um, is how it it really demonstrates this weird 19th century um, epitaph culture that really starts to develop in Père as So like every surface of this tombstone is covered in writing. And it's covered with all the details of his life, um, as well as this very sort of blow-by-blow blow description of his death, including his final words, where apparently someone says uh, his sort of su- superior... Um, officer says, who will sort of lead the charge around this corner? And he says, I will. And he kind of rushes ahead and then a bullet pierces his heart. He falls to the ground and he says his last words, "Um, my mother, my poor mother. Um, And I only know this from reading his epitaph. I have never read a biography of Lagrange or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And his mother, of course, had this tombstone commissioned. And then she covers a lot of the tombstone also with details of her own grief, talking about how she will be consumed by sorrow for the rest of her life. She'll never be happy again. Um, how she'll live this sort of sorrowful existence um, until she can be lucky enough to join him in the grave. Um, And there's even an image of like a crying woman at the base of this this tomb. And so I think it illustrates a couple of ways that the cemetery functions uh, as a space of like social cohesion. Uh, One is... Unrelated to all the stuff his mother wrote on the tomb, Uh, the tomb becomes kind of a rallying point for veterans of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, He becomes kind of a symbol um, of their kind. But the other, I think, is this weird, uh, maybe weird's the wrong word, uh, very interesting (laughs) uh, um, uh, propensity of family members and friends of the dead to cover these tombstones with the details of their own grief. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things and unexpected things, um, at least for me, uh, um, that happen in the cemetery is that people are going to talk about their own, to sort of they're putting their own grief on display, and people are visiting the cemeteries and they're reading these epitaphs because, of course, these are sort of public, sort of quasi public declarations, right? You don't inscribe a tombstone just for your own good. You inscribe it for some kind of an audience. And there are more and more people flocking to Père Lachaise uh, throughout the, the restoration. And more and more people are are reading these tombstones to try to kind of empathize with family members who have lost people, um, as well as to sort of uh, sympathize and empathize with the dead themselves, um, and to feel these kind of intense feelings of sorrow, of melancholy, of grief, of um, grief. One man even describes going up to a tomb of a young woman who had died and reading all about her life on the tombstone. It's not someone he knew before this. He just kind of happened across her grave while he was wandering through the cemetery. And he sits down on a bench next to her tombstone and he tries to convince himself that this is a woman who he knew and who he loved and who he misses so much until he finally kind of is overcome by sorrow and breaks down in tears. Um, And he writes all about this in in a guidebook to the cemetery. And so that's kind of all a very long way of saying um, that I think this is all like very sort of classically romantic, right? But I think it also shows how people are trying to create these, these emotional connections in a space like the cemetery. And in the aftermath of the French Revolution, right, which is a period of like intense suspicion and paranoia where a lot of bonds of friendship and love are snapped. Um, cemeteries become spaces where people can kind of overcome that. Right, So they can connect with one another, even if they never speak to one another, because a lot of these people never, I mean, they go out of their way not to actually um, sort of connect and interact with people, but they kind of create these imagine, imagined emotional connections with family members and with the dead, um, which is so fascinating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so like, so 19th
2: century. Yeah.
1: Well, so moving from that intimate connection to complete anonymity, Um mm-hmm is the, it, talking about the catacombs, which were also part of the, Napoleon's reforms. And workers had been moving bones from city cemeteries into the ossuary there for more than two decades when Napoleon ordered the Department of Mines to turn it into a public monument. Mm-hmm. Um, and this effort was led by a man named Louis-Étienne Éricard de Thurie. Um, who was he and how did he approach his job, both aesthetically and Philosophically, right. So, it's hard to say who like like
2: Thuy was. Um, he's an engineer. Uh, he comes from mm-hmm. a like a noble family, and the people who have most recently written biographies of him in France, just sort of short biographical essays in, in, in journals, uh, describe him as like a devout royalist. Okay, so he's not a revolutionary. <laughs> Um yet he yet like so many people manages to make it through the revolution by kind of keeping his head down and doing his work and not getting involved in politics um mm-hmm. and so he's an engineer he's not like an ideologue he's not um uh, He's not, as I said, not involved in politics in any way. Um, And he's put in charge of the Department of Mines and Quarries when Napoleon says, let's take this, like, jumbled mess of bones underground that we've been accumulating since 1784 or 1786 and... um, and, and let's turn it into a public monument. And then I'm not entirely sure whose idea it was um, to arrange the bones in the way that they did. I think it was a combination of Thurie and also this guy named uh, Gambier, who's the guardian of the catacombs. And they kind of worked together with, obviously, laborers um, to organize what were essentially just piles of bones. I mean, when cemeteries in Paris were emptied out after they were condemned, they were brought underground. And there was some... Um, attempt made to organize them, like make sure we know these bones come from the Cemetery of the Innocents and we brought them in on this day. And we know these bones come from the Cemetery de, de Saint-Roch or something like that on this day. Um, but beyond that, um, there's no kind of, uh, there's no attempt to make it into the, the, the kind of beautiful space that it is today. Um, that all happens after Napoleon says, hey, make this into a public mind. And it happens within a year. And so Thierry and the people who are working with him uh, they sort of very work for months to make sure the space has a lot of air passing through it. So it will be safe um, for people when they come to visit and they make sure it's going to be like as aesthetically pleasing as possible. Right. So they arrange all of the bones in these sort of very organized structures. Um, they create kind of patterns out of the bones. They put up placards with little sayings uh, called from sources like the Bible um, from 17th and 18th century literature from the, um, uh, ancient sources as well from antiquity. And uh, and so they he describes it as being organized with as much art as method. Um, and when Thule opens the catacombs, so maybe I should pause and say this was... I mean, the thing that got me interested in the book was finding a re- interested in this project was um, discovering that the catacombs opened after the French Revolution and that they contain not just the bones of cemeteries that had been emptied out, but they contain the bones of the victims of one of the revolution's most notorious episodes of violence, the September massacres, which happened in September of 1792. And this is when France is doing very badly at war. And there's a rumor that starts spreading that, number one, like the enemy has, has, is, has breached the sort of the last fortress before Paris and they're on their way to Paris. And when they get to Paris, they're going to open up the prisons and all of the prisoners inside of the prisons are going to slaughter all the revolutionaries in Paris. And this isn't true. There's no kind of plot for this to happen, but it gains traction very quickly in this era of extreme paranoia. And so, uh, in re- and it's kind of, uh, fanned by radical journalists. And uh, in this climate of anxiety, uh, uh, sort of groups of, of, uh, of radical Parisians, sans culette, start invading the prisons and putting everyone on these very temporary ad hoc trials um, and end up murdering about 1,400 people, I think, in the span of three days. Um, and, and that's a lot of bodies to deal with. And what happens is they're brought underground um, to the Paris catacombs. Um, and so when I found out those bones were there, and that they have sort of Mm -hmm. a placard Dedicated to them, mm-hmm. I was really interested in that connection, and so was Thuri. Um, so, right before the catacombs opened to the public, he wrote this short essay where he described his kind of hopes and dreams for this new space. And he describes how um, there's this intimate connection, he says, between the Paris catacombs and the French Revolution. And he imagines that Parisians will want to flock to this space to kind of commemorate the revolution and to mourn the revolution. Um, he's not super specific, with what he's talking about, but I. I think it to me it seems fairly clear that he's talking about the the bones of the September massacres, although it could be something else as well. It could just be kind of violence and death in general. Um, and so in this short essay he writes, right before the catacombs are open to the public, he's sort of explicitly invoking the revolution and making this connection between the two spaces. And so I was you know, aha, I've, I've discovered it, right? There is this connection. The catacombs are going to be this space of expiation or commemoration. People don't know how to think about the revolution and its aftermath. They're going to go to the catacombs and do that. Um, and that's what I was hoping to find when I did my research.
1: Well, as you write, the visitors had very mixed reactions to what they experienced there. And, <laughs> um, you know, you call these millions and millions of bones ideologically malleable um, in the sense that not every person read them in the same way. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah. So as I said, I, I, the source that I used to get at this is this really unique source, and I wasn't quite sure how to work with it. Um, and it's the guest book that was left at the exit to the catacombs. Um, it, uh, for the first three years, it was open from 1809 to mm. 1812. Um, so I guess Yeah, that's three years. Um, Mm -hmm. And so everybody who passed through um, had an opportunity to write in this guest book. And so what an interesting source, right? To see people's immediate reactions Mm -hmm. to this very new space in the city. And so I read through this whole book, um, which is kept at the Bibliothèque Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, the Historic historic Library of the City of Paris, the Library of the History of the City of Paris, which is a lovely place to work, and I recommend it. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, And I read through it, and I found, I think, six people out of thousands who mentioned the revolution (laughs) or violence. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, so I wasn't really sure what to do with that, right? Um, And then, so I started, and so I panicked about this for years. And it wasn't (laughs) until I was, um, like, several years out after my dissertation was done, and I was working on the book and trying to work through all of this, that I realized that that was actually not the worst thing. Like the, the fact that there was no, so it wasn't just that people weren't mentioning the revolution is that there was very little coherence in general. Like I could pull out certain themes that showed up. People talked about uh, being scared. People talked about laughing and having fun. Some people talked about religion. A lot of people talked about religion. A lot of people talk about missing like dead family members, like six people talk about the revolution, right? Um, <laughs> and so like, it just seemed almost cacophonous, right? Like these catacombs aren't there isn't a single meaning here, despite what perhaps Thierry would have liked. And then I realized as I was sort of working through this, that that was actually really cool, right? And maybe what that demonstrates is, as you mentioned earlier, that there's actually a kind of malleability um, in the catacombs, which I started interpreting it as a like a Foucauldian heterotopia or an other space, mm-hmm. a space that's located um, kind of on the periphery of, of, a, of, a, of a normative space where... Uh, things are kind of the same, um, but um, there's other possibilities there, right? Things that might not be possible in the city are possible in another space. Um, and things that seem contradictory can coexist without any problem. And I was like, well, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense if you look at the catacombs. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it, it, depending on. What baggage you come down into the catacombs with, you'll interpret that space um, in a different way. And it will be perhaps just as satisfying if you're someone who's wrestling with the revolution and trying to reconcile himself to the violence of the revolution as it is for like, um, you know, a a teenage girl going underground with her friends and wanting to sort of be scared and confronted with your own mortality. Like those are both... um, those are both useful experiences and they're both valid experiences and they're both ex- they're both literal examples of things that people describe in the in the catacombs guest book. Um, and the way that maps on to post-revolutionary history is, I mean, the French Revolution isn't just a political revolution or a culture. I mean, it, it, it's a revolution that touches every part of people's lives. Right. Everything changes in some capacity. Mm-hmm um and so when you tear down like the social, the existing social and political order and you don't really replace it with anything permanent there's kind of a sense of um possibility but also a sense of anxiety about what that possibility could be and i think the immediate aftermath of the revolution so kind of the the beginning of the 19th century is this era of like uncertainty anxiety but also possibility um and i think the catacombs really captures that in, in an interesting way
1: yeah So let's look at your last chapter now, um, where you discuss one of the most macabre events of the French Revolution, (laughs) which was one of the most fascinating, uh, which is the exhumation of the royal tombs at the Basilica of Saint-Denis. And the Basilica, of course, had been the necropolis of the French monarchy for centuries. Um, You had everyone from Dagobert to Charles Martel to Catherine de' Medici to Louis XIV, all buried in this one site. Can you talk about the historical context mm-hmm. for this? What led to this mass exhumation and what purpose did it serve? It, so
2: this is at, at like the, right when the terror is kind of getting underway in 1793. Um, and there's been a sort of a policy of defeudalization, uh, destroy all signs of feudalism as like a direct order by the revolutionary government, so change the names of any streets that reference a saint or a king, tear down any statues, um, that kind of thing. And people start thinking, well, fine, we're working on all of that. Meanwhile, like, you know, a couple miles outside of Paris, we have the actual literal remains of, of feudalism just sitting there. Um, And and maybe they need to be Mm -hmm. also destroyed in the same way that symbols of feudalism are being destroyed. The sort of physical remnants need also to be attacked. And there's a couple of people who kind of call for this um, in early 1793. It comes up again in the summer. And then there's a decision that's made. Yes, let's do that. Let's head out to Saint-Denis. Let's dig up all of the kings, but we're not just going to destroy them for the sake of destroying them. We're not just going to destroy them for symbolic reasons. We're going to dig up those tombs, which have got a lot of wealth sort of contained in them, particularly when France is at war. They're like, well, we can melt down anything that's made out of lead and use it for bullets, for example. And like, what a great image that is, right? So sort of take a tomb that's contained a king for centuries and take that tomb and turn it into bullets to fight um, the enemies of the Republic, right? The hereditary monarchs, monarchies of Europe. And like French revolutionaries are nothing if not like a uh, very heavy handed with their, <laughs> with their symbolism. And I think this is a great example of that. Um, and so this is a project that's like, Um, ordered by the state. And there are representatives of the state who are present to kind of observe and record what happens. So it's not kind of just angry, angry revolutionary crowds who do this. It's sort of a semi-organized affair. And you can read interesting eyewitness accounts of the sort of multi-day process of opening up these crypts and taking out these, uh, these tombs, some of which are only a couple of decades old, like Louis XV, for example. Others are hundreds and hundreds of years old, right? Yeah. And, and there's this very detailed description of what the bodies look like um, or what the remains look like. And there's a description of what they smell like uh, and then how, and how they're treated. So a couple of them are mummified. Um, kind of accidentally mummified, and they're put on display for people to come and see for a couple of days. So this was this happened in two phases, and everybody was disinterred and put into a mass grave behind the cemetery, and their tombs are brought to a temporary um, holding depot in a former convent.
1: Yeah, and so that brings me to um, my next question, was in the midst of all of the pillaging of these these royal tombs, there was one man, Um, Alexander Lenoir, who was charged with the preservation of the sculptures um, and of the funerary art. And he ended up creating the Museum of French Monuments, which you describe as the solution to a revolutionary conundrum, which was the desire to destroy the old regime, while at the same time preserving cultural patrimony. Can you tell us about this museum and how it was part of shifting public understanding of the dead, during the revolution,
2: yeah. So the this is the last chapter in the book. It's also the longest chapter, and the one like that gave me the most trouble because the the dead aren't really there, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the dead are only there as like an absence. Um, so one of the fellows who was um, at, was present for the exhumation of all of those kings who wrote down um, his uh, his experience, whose eyewitness testimony is the best example we have of like what the how that exhumation. Um, took place and what it looked like is was Alexandre Lenoir who was like an artist before the revolution. Um, he was a, a student of one of the king's painters actually and because of that connection he's given this important position um, when the revolution breaks out and he's put in charge of like conservation but not conservation of like art, of, of, uh, of paintings, and kind of high art. He's put in charge of conserving broken pieces of sculpture, basically. So things that weren't good enough to go into the Louvre, which also dates from this time period, um, are kind of put off in this other place. It's called the the, the Depot of the Petit Augustin. So it's the, the, a former convent. Um, and so he's just supposed to catalog all of these kind of pieces of broken sculpture and sculptures that have been confiscated, uh, not just from Saint-Denis, uh, but from various churches all over France, all over Paris, and eventually all over France, um, and from manor houses that have been abandoned, kind of like anything that can then be redistributed um, as needed across the city and across the country. So he's supposed to just kind of be this middle manager of, like, of, of, of building materials, right, from the old regime. Um, but he very quickly kind of takes advantage of this opportunity and makes himself into a much more important figure. He makes himself into basically the director, curator and director of uh, the first ever history museum in France. And this happens fairly quickly. He decides to put all of these pieces of sculpture on display. He kind of arranges them, he repairs them and he decides to kind of order them chronologically. Um, it takes a, it takes a little while for this to all play out. Um, but by the end of the, by like eighteen hundred. Um, he's working on it sort of throughout the 1790s. By 1800, he's he's really got his his collection set up, um, and so the idea is you will walk into this building, um, and there'll be a bunch of sort of interesting sculptures uh, surrounding you in this. Uh, Um, kind of this first introductory room and then you'll proceed to go from room to room to room to room Um, each room is dedicated to a different century in French history and you'll start in like the 13th century I think and um, and all of the sculptures in that room will be from that century Um, and so it's supposed to create this kind of immersive authentic experience of walking through the past Um, and the featured um, items on display in each of these rooms are the tombs that were pulled out of Saint-Denis. Okay, so there's lots of stuff going on in these rooms, but the things that like your eye is drawn to, the things at the center of the room are all are always these um, these tombs. They're empty, of course, right? As I mentioned earlier, the the bodies had been thrown into into a mass grave and covered with quicklime, um, but the tombs themselves are on display, and so I think that's why I said it's the answer to a conundrum, right? Because like in the revolution and, and afterwards, you can't really, I mean, how do you put the these sort of Symbols of of royalty and of the prior regime on display. You don't want to um, be seen to be sort of revering or celebrating them, right? You want to sort of he wants to protect them as like um, items of artistic and historic value. And so the way he kind of gets around that is by kind of reinscribing their narrative. So instead of being this story of like. Unbroken divine right kingship that dates back centuries. He kind of constructs this sort of much more um, to us familiar kind of political history of France that you can see through these sort of elements of its material culture, um, and the kings become kind of illustrations, um, if uh, you know, uh, of of the time. But at the same time. I mean, they're still the tombs of kings. (laughs) There are no kings in there, but the kings had been in there very recently. These had been concealed from view in a lot of cases. And so you have a lot of people describing going through this museum while it was open because it's only opened until 1815 as sort of feeling like they're walking among the kings but they're not really feeling sort of a sense of reverence they're feeling this profound sense of like egalitarianism right like the kings are brought down to their level um i can i can touch these things that once touched their bodies the kings are, are not necessarily any better than me and so it becomes this kind of this really interesting space to kind of reimagine early 19th century France's relationship with the old regime past in a way that makes it useful, right? And, and, and sort of removes the problematic elements. Um, and again, it becomes a sort of space of instruction in the same way that the cemeteries did. It's a really, yeah, a really interesting museum that certainly has found its historians. Um, there are books written about the Museum of French Monuments, but nobody had ever looked at the fact that these featured displays in the museum were actually empty tombs of kings. And to me, that seemed like kind of a missed opportunity and a really significant feature of the museum.
1: That was the first time I had learned how he got Abelard and Eloise and Molière and La Fontaine Mm -hmm. and how eventually after the restoration, that's how those tombs ended up in Père Lachaise. In Père Lachaise. So interesting. Right. So you're talking now
2: not just about the tombs, but about the bodies because of Right because the museum had its sort of its its interior full of empty tombs, but it also had a garden that he decided to build up pretty early on. He called it the Elysian Garden, where he collected the physical remains of who he saw as like a important French historical figures and these were almost always writers um, and philosophers and poets um, and so he collects um, quite a few of them, buries them, he makes mm. funeral sculptures and tombs for some of them, including Abelard and Eloise. He tries to construct this like medieval looking uh, you know, huge tomb for them. The one that, that little chapel that's still in Père Lachaise, it's not a medieval, you know, s- structure. It's something that was built in like the early 19th century. Um, but yeah, he reunited their bones together famously, um, which he saw as sort of this great act of his life. Um, and so, yeah, one of the things I was really interested in is the relationship between that garden full of dead bodies and this museum full of empty tombs. And I think the and the best way to think about that relationship is that if the museum is telling this kind of chronological history of France with the desacralized mm. tombs of kings, um, the garden uh, doesn't have any kind of chronological order. It's just sort of very, a beautiful space meant to kind of inspire awe and calm. Um, and the tombs are kind of scattered and grouped according to like affiliation. So like the writers who were friends while they were living are grouped together in one corner. Of course, Abelard and Eloise are kept together in another corner. Um, and so I saw it as sort of a... Uh, a space designed to commemorate um, enduring values um, for post-revolutionary France, mm-hmm. specifically things of, like friendship and love, um, which are put on display and commemorated in the backyard. So very different from the sort of political narrative of of kingship on display inside of the museum. Like one thing is the past, the museum is the past, but the garden is sort of the present and the future.
1: Right. Well, Erin. Aaron- This is a great book, and I really hope everyone checks it out. It was just such a fascinating read. And um, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for your questions. I really appreciate your interest, and uh, I'm excited to have the book out. And um, yeah, it's it's just wonderful to talk about it. Thank you.
1: We've been talking with Erin Legacy about her new book, Making Space for the Dead, Catacombs, Cemeteries, and the Reimagining of Paris, 1780 to 1830. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.